Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. Hey guys, it's Taylor Howe, uh, the marketing manager at Fiddle. I'm excited to introduce today's episode of the Physical Product Movement Podcast. Today's guest is James Oliver, and he is the CEO and founder of Atlas Protein Bar, which is the first protein bar designed to help both your mind and body thrive. Throughout the episode, James shares different quotes and business philosophies that motivate and inspire him. He talks about the grueling schedule he followed when launching his brand, where he drove Uber in the morning and evenings and cold contacted gyms during the day to sample his bars. And just side note on this one, you're going to be blown away by the number of Uber rides this guy has under his belt. And speaking of gyms, he talks about why he intentionally ignored grocery stores in favor of gyms for sampling when he was first getting started. He also shares advice for finding a great co-packer, why he eventually decided to raise capital after bootstrapping for a couple of years. He talks about how introverts might have a secret edge as entrepreneurs. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Ken and James as much as I did. All right, James, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty good, Ken, and I appreciate you having me. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity. Well, yeah, thanks for making me uh, wake up a little bit early. I get to see this sort of sunrise here in, in, in Utah. We've got the sun just sort of cresting the top of Mount Tipanogos here, and I think it's amazing. So where are you calling from? I'm calling in from Manhattan. Manhattan, yeah. So have you lived there for, for long, or is, are you from the area, or what? No, so I actually, I just moved to Manhattan in August, and prior to that, had been born and raised in Boston, for the prior 26 years of my life. So I've been in Boston my entire life up until two months ago when I moved to New York. Well, I love the East Coast, um, especially this time of year. It's late fall and I just think it's beautiful. So, well, we'd like to kick off this podcast with, with a quick quote, you know, something that's impactful to you. Do you have anything in mind? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. And it's, it's funny because this is actually a difficult exercise for me because I have, since the age of, I think, 16, I've been compiling a, a document of quotes that I found impactful that I've come across either in reading or in conversation. And currently, that, uh, that document for me is over 50 pages long. 
Wow. Um, so so I, I had a number of quotes to, to choose from, but the one that really resonates me, especially right now, is a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and it's, every artist was at first an amateur. And the reason why that really resonates with me is because I think everyone, when you're starting something, whether it's business or a new skill set, whatever, you can feel uh, some kind of resistance that is a form of, I guess, hesitation about moving forward with it. And you can feel like imposter syndrome or that um, you're just not good at this. You don't have the natural ability for it, whatever. And keeping in mind that everybody in history who has mastered some skill or has achieved competency in something started at the same place is kind of calming. And it gives you the confidence that, you know, this is how everyone starts out. This is how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be easy when I'm starting this thing, whether it's the hobby or business. And there's a learning curve that everyone in, in history has to go through. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of reminds me of his other um, quotes that's really popular. You know, that which we persist in doing becomes easier to do. Not because the nature of the change, the, the thing has changed, but because our power to do has increased, right? And there's, you know, lots of different versions of that floating around, but you know, in some ways it's saying the same thing, but you, you really touched on on something that I think pretty much every guest that's been on this podcast has felt and that imposter syndrome. You know, could you describe in your life a couple of times when maybe you felt that and then you've charged ahead anyway? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've probably most, most um, recently felt that in running a business um, because by virtue of running a seven-figure business that I started on my own, bootstrapped it, and have grown into to what it is today. You have people reach out to you, people look up to you and ask you for advice. And sometimes you're just like, I'm not really sure I know much, much more than you do. But realizing that's a, a very common feeling for people to have and that to some degree, everyone is just is figuring it out and no one uh, really has a, like a solid um, plan, I guess. So yeah, I would say in my current position has been where I've, I've felt it, felt it the most in my life, but I've definitely gotten more comfortable with it as I've matured in the role. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I've noticed myself answering questions a lot differently these days than maybe I used to in the past. And that I think when I was in my 20s, I would answer just questions a lot more confidently, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is the way to do it. Or yeah. this is what I'd recommend. And then these days, it's sort of like, there's just more nuance to it. I can answer like, this is what I did. And this is what worked. This is what I think might work. But just kind of realizing that there's a lot of areas where we just don't know. And you got to just try it. And some things that worked in the past maybe won't work in 2021. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if uh, that resonates with you at all. But it's just sort of the feeling of I don't think anybody has the answers. And kind of seeing that within myself, that means me too, right? I don't have all the answers. But yeah. it doesn't mean that you can't move forward. It doesn't mean you can't make progress. Totally. And yeah, I think what you just mentioned is spot on. And it's some variation of the quote of the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know, which I think leads to what you were describing, where you start to say things like, I think, or it seems, or it appears, as opposed to saying at, in, or as opposed to speaking in absolutes, as I think is more likely to happen with somebody that doesn't necessarily have as much experience or has, has learned as much. So it's funny how that happens because you would think it would be the opposite. 
Yeah, yeah, you really would. I, I actually, you know, started talking like that or recognizing that when I noticed that a lot of the people that I really look up to and, you know, you look at uh, and you maybe think that they have everything figured out. That's the way they talk, you know, and I, I just think it comes from maturity of kind of knowing your limits. And and um, I think you can still find success. Um, you could probably find it faster if you approach things this way and kind of look at things as an experiment. And we would try this and you're looking for signs of success versus not, you know. So anyway, I, I think we mean you. One thing I've discovered in just, you know, the 10 minutes we've been talking is that we could probably talk about this forever. And uh, <laughs> I think you've shared like three quotes with us already and I've shared a couple. So I, I love a good quote, too. And I'm a big fan of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. But let's jump into your past. Why don't you tell us just a little bit of, you know, it sounds like you're from the Boston area. You know, what what led up to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So I was raised in the Boston area, always very active growing up. I probably played every single sport that you can think of. I was in the Boy Scouts. I spent a lot of times outdoors. So had a very active upbringing, have four siblings. So a lot of time outdoors. And my fascination with nutrition, that really goes back to one of my earliest memories, actually. And I was about four years old at the time. And I remember my parents telling me that uh, eating carrots can improve eyesight. And Mm -hmm. my four-year-old self took that very literally. And I found all the carrots that we had in our house and (laughs) ate all of them, uh, thinking that doing so would give me some version of supervision which obviously is not quite how, how nutrition works, but the kernel was kind of planted in my mind from that point on. And that underlying principle that what we consume really can improve what our body and mind is capable of doing, that really stuck with me. And that laid the foundation, which I then developed throughout my time in middle school, high school, while I was pursuing athletics more seriously and paying attention to, to nutrition. And I went to college and uh, moved away from team sports and started doing more endurance sports. So I did a 70.3 Ironman. I did a few 24-hour races. And for a lot of those events, nutrition is obviously paramount because your body can only go as far as it has fuel in the tank. Dove more into the world of nutrition, got my uh, sports nutritionist certification And uh, the more I learned about nutrition, the more I realized how powerful of an effect that it actually has on everything we do, and also how little we actually really understand about nutrition, which is is kind of staggering considering uh, the role that it plays in all of our lives and how it's, it's probably the single largest determinant of your overall health and, and well-being. So yes, that's kind of how I end up with the fascination around nutrition that I that I have today. And when I was doing all of those endurance sports, was obviously consuming a lot of uh, different foods, including bars, and found that there was just kind of a white space that I wanted for myself. I'd been a huge bar consumer and had probably every single brand over the prior decade, and thought that there was product that was not on the market that should be on the market. And based on my own needs, kind of my market of one, I decided to develop this product thinking that if I have this kind of itch, there's probably somebody else out there that has it as well. And that's the conviction that I had in order to really go forward 
with developing the, the business out, doing the research, laying out the, the business plan. And I spent my senior year at Tufts University in Boston going through all of those steps. And I used $5,000 that I'd saved from driving Uber and selling knives and landscaping. And I used that money to make a few thousand bars, thinking that my worst case scenario was that I would not be able to sell any of them and I would be stuck eating a few thousand bars that I really liked. So I was fine with that outcome. <laughs> um, and my initial plan was to basically go around all the functional fitness gyms in the Boston area. So hit up CrossFits and Orange Theories and sample the product there. I had zero money to fund any kind of advertising. So I, I had to do that in order to drive trial and to drive awareness to the brand. So I basically did that for the first year or so. And after doing that, just hitting the streets really hard for a year, was able to take that customer base that I built and transition it into a direct-to-consumer first brand, which is where we've really been building Atlas over the past three years or so, both through our site and our Amazon presence. So a uh, long-winded answer to your question, but that's kind of the, the abbreviated version of how I, <laughs> the genesis story of my interest in nutrition all the way to where we're at today. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And uh, maybe you could just give us a, a little bit of an introduction to Atlas bars and, and what makes you different, just so the listener kind of has some orientation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fantastic question because there's probably no category that's more crowded than the bar category. If you go into any grocery store, I'm sure he'll be overwhelmed with probably at least a hundred different brands to choose from. And what makes Atlas in particular different is that it's the only product in the category that provides functional nutrition that supports both physical and mental health. And what I mean by that is that the majority of nutrition is viewed usually as just around calories in, calories out, provides energy. But there's this emerging, I guess, uh, area of nutrition called functional nutrition. And that's nutrition that provides benefits on top of just the, the energy that you derive from mm -hmm. consuming it. And so on the physical side of things, the bars are really high in protein and fiber. So they're most of our customers, they consume them as meal replacements because they're so satiating, even though they're only around 200 calories. And I was actually just speaking with a customer earlier this week who shared with me that she had lost 35 pounds by consuming Atlas bars. Wow. So on the physical side, that's the value proposition from Atlas. And then on the mental side, one of the, I guess, one of the emerging health crises in the U.S. is this mental health issue that has been exacerbated by COVID. And there are a number of ways that you can obviously address it. And one of the ways is functional nutrition. And we use an ingredient in the product called ashwagandha. <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful and it took me a, a while to figure out how to pronounce it. Uh, but <laughs> ashwagandha, it's, it's a super unique ingredient because there are many of these kind of exotic sounding ingredients that you can find in the aisles of any health food store. And what makes ashwagandha different is that there's over 1,200 modern scientific studies that have been done to actually validate the benefits that it claims. And the majority of those benefits are around its very unique ability to reduce mental stress and promote feelings of well being. So there were some studies that have been done very recently gold standard studies, double-blind placebo, and they showed that ashwagandha actually was able to help reduce feelings of mental stress and anxiety 
that were levels on par with some pharmaceutical solutions. So pretty exciting stuff. And that's the other side of the value proposition of the products beyond the, the physical. All right. So let's double click on what you'd said a little bit earlier about driving Uber. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, and why, I mean, it takes, you know, it's not, you don't just wake up in the morning saying that you want to drive Uber and try to get a bar company off the ground. You know, what was the, the motivation, you know, and what kept you going in order to make a sacrifice like that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I knew that I wanted to start a business and the logic that I went through was if I'm going to try and start something, then right out of college is the most rational time to start it because the older I get, the more responsibility I'm going to have, whether it's financial or familial. So right now at 22 years old, I have no financial or family obligations. I don't have any pets. It's just me. So if I really want to go for it, then now's the time to do so. I didn't want to raise any money because honestly, I didn't know anything about raising money. And I didn't know what I would do if I raised money. So instead of doing that, I decided, Hey, I think I can fund this just by driving Uber. So what I would do is I would get up at four in the morning, drive Uber from the four to like nine or so, and then sell bars during the day and then drive Uber at night again and use what I made from driving Uber to put back into the, put back into the company to, to help it grow. And that was a, it was a very, it was a great experience for me because Uber, I did over 3000 rides in the Boston area. So I did a good amount of, of Ubering still can't navigate around Boston, by the way, but <laughs> around the streets a lot. And it was a great experience because you are able to talk with so many different people. And I actually, I put up a post about this earlier this week and talked about how I was inspired by another Ralph Waldo Emerson quotes where he he says that everybody you meet is your superior in one way and in that way you can learn from them. So I, I read that quote around that time and really inspired me to try and learn at least one thing from every single person who I gave a ride to. And in doing so, I had a lot of very interesting conversations with a huge cross-section of society with people that you would never speak with otherwise. And I, I do think that I learned more in that experience than I did in any classroom that I sat in, either in college or high school. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned kind of the older I get is just it's how similar we are uh, to each other and how, you know, a lot of the, the problems in society today is just is just because we don't do uh, exactly what you just did is just talk to people and get to know them, learn their story. And, uh, you know, it, it is amazing. We really can learn from each other. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I understand the, the Uber side and talking people's ears off. Let's talk about the other part. So after nine o'clock, you know, you try to sell bars, you know, what did that look like and, and what kind of activities were you doing? Yeah. So I think a crucial part of it for me was having a plan I think if I had just tried to launch something, but didn't really have a strategic plan for how I was going to do it, I don't think I would have been able to, I guess, summon the confidence or the, the discipline to make myself do it every day. But because I had a target list of places to hit, I had about 150 gyms in the Boston area that I knew I was going to. It made it very easy for me to just get out of the door and go every single day. So I would really just roll up to these gyms, drive to them. Uh, walk in the front door, like very old school cold calling 
would walk mm -hmm. in the front door and just ask to speak with whoever the manager was or the, the owner. Fortunately for those types of gyms, uh, CrossFit gyms, a lot of the times the owners are pretty heavily involved. So the decision maker was right on site. And then I would just pitch the product and say, hey, just looking to sample the product to your gym members. And if they like it, would love to have a conversation about you bringing the product in and offering it as an option to your gym members. And the reason that I thought that was a good strategy to pursue to launch the brand was because like I was talking about earlier in a grocery store, there's so much competition. You're probably next to 90, if not a hundred other brands in a gym, you're maybe next to one other brand. So immediately you are able to get a lot more brand awareness out there and you just cut down the decisions that somebody has to make dramatically. So I thought that made a lot more sense in terms of a launch strategy for this specific product. And so what was a common reaction uh, to one of these gym owners that you're talking to? You know, let's say that they turned you down, right? Which is, I think, the, the anxiety that somebody who's going to do this, you know, they're thinking that in their head. What type of things would they say? And, you know, were they appreciative that you came in or were they rude? Did you, you know, what were some of the, the reactions? So I don't know if I ever actually got turned down because from their perspective and putting being able to put yourself into somebody else's perspective is an extremely helpful skill if you're trying to sell anything but from their perspective there is no downside because i wasn't asking to sell anything initially i was just asking if they would be open to me coming in and setting up a small table and just handing out samples of the product and from their perspective that's actually a benefit because that's just a, another benefit that you're offering to your members. You're getting free product of this new local brand. And the reason why I pursued that strategy was because if I could sample the product and get the gym members on board, then the owners would be much more likely to bring the product in and to buy it wholesale from us because they really care about what their gym members want. If the gym members want it, then they're going to do it. So most often I would just not get responses if I reached out to people via phone or, or email or just left messages or I, I went by the gym and asked them to call me back. But I never really got turned down to, to my face, which is, is surprising. But again, I think it's because of the approach that I took. I think if I took the approach of just walking in and trying to sell them on the spot, I would have gotten a lot more rejection. And I think a lot of the, the owners, they just saw a 22-year-old kid who was hustling and they respected it. And I think they saw that there was maybe uh, a resemblance of themselves in me because these people who own these gyms, they're all small business owners themselves and they know what the grind is like. So I think that was a way that I kind of developed a, a kinship with them as well, which definitely helped. Yeah. And realizing that that entrepreneur to entrepreneur connection and that it's real. You know, somebody who's on the grind themselves, they can recognize somebody else who's who's grinding, you know, and so I think it sounds scarier than than it is. Did your experience, uh, you mentioned that you sold knives for a little bit. Do you think that helped you out? Oh, tremendously. Yeah, I sold knives through Cutco, uh, which if you're on any college campus, probably recognize it because there are usually flyers all over the place for kids to do it. So yeah, I mean, by nature, I'm definitely more of a, introvert i don't feel especially comfortable just walking up to somebody and introducing myself so to go through what i had to go through with selling knives where if you're not familiar essentially you have to cold call a list of dozens and dozens of people you cold call them you essentially read them a script and then you ask 
uh, very soon into the conversation, if you can come to their house and demonstrate, do a demonstration for them of knives for like an hour. So it's a pretty tall ask if you're calling somebody out of the blue and then you actually have to go to their house. You do this demonstration, people that you've most likely never met before. You do this demonstration with the knives and you walk through the whole process. And then at the end, you ask them if they're willing to make a $1,200 purchase. So that really, doing that a few dozen times, if not a few hundred times, um, that really desensitized me to any kind of trepidation that I had around cold calling people or getting rejected because you realize that you might get rejected, but there's always the next one. It's a numbers game and three rejections in a row just means you're that much closer to the next sale. So you just got to keep moving. Right. And, and uh, you know, they, they always talk about um, sales being the lifeblood of business and or good sales can mask a whole bunch of sins in a business, right? How do you think that sales experience and particular, I mean, selling knives, but then also going door to door, essentially selling your bars. How do you think that's helped your, your business grow? And, you know, what would you say to other entrepreneurs that maybe don't have a lot of sales skills? You know, maybe um, you can give them some suggestions on how to level up. Yeah, I would say sales skills are, and I don't even know if I would refer to them as sales skills because it's really the ability to persuade people. And whether or not you're in sales, you do some version of this in pretty much any job that you have, whether you're trying to persuade your team to take a certain strategy or to persuade your boss that you want to work from home two days as opposed to zero days out of the week. Developing the skill set of persuasion and understanding how to do that will immensely help you in, in really anything that you're trying to do, but especially obviously entrepreneurship because you're selling yourself all the time. You're either selling the product to prospective buyers, you're either selling the product to customers, um, you're selling it, you're selling yourself to potential investors, to employees who are considering working for you. Um, you're selling the company to potential partners. So yeah, persuasion, I think, is really one of the most essential skill sets that you can develop if you aspire to be an entrepreneur. But even outside of that, if you're looking to be more effective in your current role. And, and any suggestions on how you know somebody would go about developing um, the, that persuasion muscle? I think it goes back to what I said before. I think the, the cardinal rule that I try to follow is really put yourself in the other person's shoes. Because if you can completely put yourself in the other person's shoes and understand their needs and their wants, then the way that you're going to approach them and the way that you're going to speak to them is going to be much more likely to lead to the outcome that you are, are looking for. So it's not like a magic bullet, not going to work every time. But if you can empathize and really connect with them, as opposed to trying to do a hard sell or just shoving something down somebody's throat, it's going to be significantly more effective. And I've seen it work hundreds of times in my own experience. Uh, so I'm, I'm really an advocate for a very strong emphasis on empathy and being able to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. And I think that might actually be one of the advantages of, of somebody that might be a little more introverted. You know, you tend to have a little bit more empathy for this, this situational type stuff and an ability to internalize and, and learn quickly. And that's a huge, a huge generalization. But I, I don't think that to be sort of persuasive, you need to be the classic, 
outgoing, really loud, you know, sales type person. I think you can persuade in, in your own way. And there's lots of different flavors of leadership. There's a lot of different flavors of salesmanship. And, you know, at least that's what I've seen. And, and one of the apprehensions to this is, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs think they have to be a certain way. And they're just like, I'm, I'm just not that guy, you know, but you don't have to be that guy. You just need to learn some skills. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, I think that thinking that certain roles can only be certain types of people is very limiting. And I think it's just very <laughs> erroneous as well, because if you look at any role, you will find a absolute cross-section of people in that role. People who are very successful, some who are on one side of the spectrum and some who are on the other. Like one example that I can think of off the top of my head is the CEO and founder of Shopify, Toby, I think Lutka is how you say his last name. Yeah, and I think he yeah. won CEO or Entrepreneur of the Year in, in Canada. And he has a reputation for being extremely measured, like thoughtful, kind of like mild-mannered and soft-spoken, which is, it, it contrasts with a lot of the, I guess, stereotypical qualities that people think a CEO has, somebody who's like a hard charger, very strong A-type, very different. And so I think somebody like him is just a great example of how you don't need to be a certain way to be successful in a certain role. Right. So let's fast forward a little bit. Actually, before we do, I, I want to um, just just um, uh, make sure to, that you tell us a little bit about how you actually got your bars uh, made initially, you know, and did you know anything about how to do that, how to find a, a manufacturer for your bars? You know, what was that process like? Yeah, no, I knew absolutely zero about manufacturing food. I did know, I knew two things. I knew you could either manufacture food yourself, starting out in the commercial kitchen that has all the food certifications that will allow you to sell it, or you can go try and find what's called a co-packer who will take your recipe and take your ingredients and create the product on your behalf. And I talked to and read from people who had gone before me in terms of which strategy made the most sense. And from what I had learned, my impression was that if you go the commercial kitchen route, then there's going to be a point where you have to transition to a co-packer and there could be significant risks in doing so because the processes are going to be different and the product could be different than what you initially used to launch the company. And so I wanted to avoid that entirely and decided that I'm just going to start out with the co-backer so we can scale from day one and don't have to worry about any product quality loss or anything like that. So I used my good friend Google to figure out who some viable options would be and really just started researching cold calling folks, understanding what their minimums were. There are some co-packers that have minimums in the bar category for instance, of 1 million bars. So they won't even talk to you unless you can produce a million bars in a single production run. Obviously, if you're starting out, it's not really going to work. So you got to find the folks who are willing to work with startups and who are willing to produce just a few thousand bars. My first run, I think, was 5,000 bars. And something else actually that's important to note about that run is because manufacturing is so dependent upon scale, the costs are significantly higher if you're doing smaller runs like that. Uh, right. So when I started out, I wasn't really fixated on our margin because I knew I wasn't making money on the bars that I was selling. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to get to a certain scale to sell enough bars so that we could bring our margin way up 
and get to a sustainable point for the business. So I, I knew that we had a path to get there because I, I could see from the information that was shared to me by the co-packer that if I get to say a hundred thousand bars in a run, like this can be a sustainable business right now I'm at 5,000. So I got to figure out a way to get from 5,000 to a hundred thousand. And that means I got to sell. Right. Just uh, any tips on, on finding a good co-packer, you know, that path, you know, definitely has the benefits that you outlined, but it's not without risks either. Right. And you know, there are trade-offs that, that you, you need to be willing to make any tips on making sure that you find a co-packer that's going to work for you. Yeah, I think it's something that I should have done more due diligence on early on. So we've worked with a number of co-packers at this point. And starting out, I basically didn't have the ability to choose. So I just worked with whoever would be willing to work with me. And I think I I should have been a little bit more um, picky when making those decisions because a co-packer is the one who's going to be making the product and the product is going to determine the viability of the business. The product is everything, especially for a company like us or like some of the other guests you've had on here where the brand is just a single product. And if that product is not made well or if there are deficiencies, if there's recalls, your company is, is gone. So what I've learned having done this a few times now is working with somebody who knows the landscape finding an individual that has either done this before and can help you navigate through that world and knows which questions to ask, that is of immense value. And it may seem like an unnecessarily unnecessary cost, but I guarantee you that it's going to save a lot of headaches and a lot of money in the long run to do it the right way the first time. And I'm saying this because we just did this, this in the past 12 months, we did it the quote unquote right way for the first time and involved this huge list of questions that we sent out to all these different co-packers. There were probably 50 questions on it and we had all of them answer. And then we could compare the answers right next to another. And then from there, we went on to interviews and then trials and all that. And that's the way that it it should be done. But prior to that, I just kind of, I, I had conversations and if it sounded good, then went forward with it, but would definitely recommend against doing that approach. Right. Yeah. I think those are some good tips. So yeah, Earlier, you mentioned that that you didn't want to raise money right away, but it looks like you were able to raise money a little bit earlier this year. You know, what changed in your mindset or, you know, probably a better question is why did you uh, decide to raise uh, some seed capital this year? Yeah, so we've raised a few different rounds of capital. The first round of capital that we raised was actually right before COVID kind of stopped the world in February of 2020. And my decision to raise capital really came down to kind of a fork in the road. Either I realized I could run this business as more of a lifestyle business, something that I wanted to do long-term and I'm sure it would grow organically, but not necessarily at the rate, like an exponential rate of growth, or you can make the decision to take on other people's money and try to really ramp things up. And that second approach just really resonated more with who I am and what I want to do and what I want to uh, learn from this experience. And I, I think that in order to get to where we really want to get the brand to, we need to take an infusion of capital to, to help do that. There are some brands that are able to grow without taking capital and they're able to grow at an exponential rate. It's, it's very difficult, I think, to do that, as I'm, I'm sure you know. 
right. and it's very difficult to grow organically exponentially. It can be done, but it's difficult to do. And I think there's some luck involved with that. So really it came down to what my goals were, what my vision was for the brand and realizing that in order to achieve them, we needed some additional capital. Okay. Yeah. And so you said that, uh, I'm just looking at my notes again, you raised in February of 2020, it looks like early 2020. And then did you, have you had subsequent fundraisers uh, since then? Yeah. So we raised in February of 2020 and then we've done uh, two kind of incremental raises this past year uh, and are in the process of, of raising some additional capital over the next six months or so. Okay. And um, I assume a lot of that's going towards, um, you know, marketing and sales. Yep. Marketing, sales, innovation. Uh, If you're going into retail, it requires a lot of resources to support that, both on the inventory standpoint and on the marketing. So you just, you need a lot of resources in order to, to go into brick and mortar retail, which is one of the reasons actually why we've grown on e-commerce over the past three years, because I wanted to kind of delay that as much as possible. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned you, you got to a fork in the road, you know, from sort of self-funding it to um, deciding that you needed it. What For somebody out there who, let's say that they've, they have a, a CPG product that's off the ground, they're making some sales. How, how do you know that you're kind of coming to that fork in the road? Was there, were there any sort of signs that, hey, you know, we kind of need to design our path here? I think there are a number of I guess, signs that could could indicate that. One is if you are just being worked into the ground and you just don't have enough support. And in order to get that support, you need to make hires, which require capital. I realized that I was limiting the growth of the company in some regard because I was still trying to do everything and mm-hmm. lone wolves don't scale. So I, I realized that I, I needed to put a team together if I wanted to help scale this business. And to do that, I needed to raise some capital. So that was probably the biggest sign for myself. And another piece of advice that I would offer is just really knowing what you need that capital for. I don't think it's a good idea to raise money just for the sake of raising money. And I think in the day and age we live in, it can be seen as very like sexy to raise a few million dollars. And I think for a lot of people, the raises are actually the goals when the goal really should be to build the best brand and the best company and culture possible. And I think it's, it can be difficult to ignore that noise, but really I would focus on understanding what the business strategy is and the resources that you need in order to execute that strategy and being very confident in that before raising money, because I think you can uh, put the business and yourself in a compromising position if you're not sure about those things and you go out to raise money. Right. And I think it also, it could be really hard to raise money if you can't articulate that, right? What are you going to use the money for? What's the goal here? Because investors are very interested in that, obviously. Well, let's just talk about, you know, going forward, you know, what, what's on the horizon for you? You mentioned that you might have another fundraise coming up. You guys uh, working on getting into any, you know, wholesale or retail uh, locations, you know, what does the future hold? I guess the immediate future, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to? Yeah. So we have a, a number of things coming down the pipeline. We just launched into Stop and Shop, which is a large retailer in the Northeast. They have hey, congratulations. So excited about that. We're actually going to be launching into Lifetime Fitness nationwide in two weeks. So excited about that as well. 
a number of other chains have come online recently. We're really focusing on or growing our retail footprint. And then elsewhere, we have new innovation that's coming down the pipeline that we're going to be launching in Q1 of next year, which we're, we're really excited about. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to make some waves. So I'm very happy about that. And yeah, just continuing to grow the team, grow the brands online and, and offline. Those are really our, our main prerogatives over the next few quarters. Yeah, very nice. Well, let's, let's wrap up here with the quick fire round. Just got four questions for you. Are you ready for it? Let's do it. All right. So what's uh, one tool or resource that has helped you the most in your current position? I, I've gotten a, a physical journal, which is, is extremely helpful. I think it's very easy to, to have digital documents in this day and age, but having a physical journal to write things down in meetings for remembering and follow-up has been crucial for me. So I did that for a while and I just never went back and reviewed them. <laughs> Do you kind of have a process to actually get back and, and look at your notes or how does that look like uh, for you? It's less about reviewing the notes for me and more about the practice of writing them down. I think there's actually some pretty good science to support this as well. Just the process of writing something down, physically writing it, it actually encodes it into your brain, into your neural circuitry better than just listening to it. So that is, that's like more than half the reason I do it. And then also obviously having the physical written record and also just the flexibility of being able to write on paper, like the word docs are great, but you obviously can't like draw arrows and do all like circles and all of the, the things that you could do if you're just writing on a, a line sheet of paper. Cool. What's one book um, that you could recommend to the audience? Great question. Well, <laughs> since I have it sitting in front of me and since I just finished it, and it also relates to what I was talking about before with persuasion, I would say how to win friends and influence people. It's kind of the OG uh, kind of self-betterment book it's been around since I think like the 1920s and has sold like 20 or 30 million copies, but it's, it's done that for a reason. And the idea that I was sharing before about how the most important thing I think in persuasion is to be able to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. That's very heavily inspired by a lot of the writings in that book. That's not an original idea for me by any means. Many other people had that thought. So I'm just regurgitating knowledge of, of smarter people than myself. Yeah, Dale Carnegie. That's a great one. What is uh, one piece of advice that you give your 21-year-old self? So I guess that's uh, not too long ago. Uh, I would tell my 21-year-old self that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And I know that's kind of uh, cliche advice, but when you're in a startup, and especially if you're starting it yourself, there's always something to do. Like you can literally be working every single minute of the day and still have more to do. And for me, somebody who's very <laughs> driven and likes to get stuff done, you can kind of fall into that trap of just doing stuff and just feel like you're not really making much progress because you've got so much stuff to, to do even after you've spent all that time doing it. So I'd say like protecting the time for doing other things outside of just launching uh, the business, whether that's developing hobbies, relationships, other interests, reading, et cetera, because that all those things, even though it may seem like answering emails is a better use of your time than reading a book or uh, having social connections, those other things are likely going to help more in the long run than answering uh, 17 emails. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Stephen Covey, you know, used to talk about sharpening the saw, right? Taking the time to sharpen the saw. And so reading, taking care of your physical health. And I say this as somebody who's guilty of putting those things aside when business is, is going crazy. So that's something I have to remind myself about too. Who is uh, one person, you know, a brand or, you know, somebody in the CPG space that you look up to and would love to take to lunch? So my favorite book, my favorite book of all time is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Oh yeah, great the story one. story of, of Nike. And I just have such admiration for what he was able to do because what, I mean, what he did was difficult in building Nike, but he did it during a time where venture capital wasn't even a phrase. He did it during a time when I think like one out of every 10 Americans had been on an airplane and he was importing shoes from Japan. So what he was able to build in the time that he was able to build it and now what that brand stands for, like just seeing the Nike symbol for a lot of folks that evokes inspiration and people want to do more with themselves. They want to push further. And the fact that this symbol that didn't exist 50 years ago, the swoosh, that that now evokes such a visceral response for billions of people is pretty incredible because it's all due to the work that Phil Knight and his team did over the past few decades to build Nike into what it is today and what it represents. Yeah, Phil Knight. Um, yeah, very inspiring. That would be an awesome lunch. So, and so. also, actually, going back to a previous point, he's another person who I think he mentions in his book. He's uh, an introvert. He's somebody who's very quiet, very yep. kind of mellow, and obviously one of the most successful founders and CEOs of all time. So, just another example. Yep, yep. And imposter syndrome and just kind of learning on the fly. Didn't have all the answers, you know, like, yeah, very relevant to our conversation today. Yeah. So let's just, let's kind of wrap things up, you know, so if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? What's the best way to find your product? Just tell us a little bit about how to do that. Sure. Yeah. The best way to reach out to me personally would be over uh, LinkedIn, which is just James Oliver and the guy that has founder CEO of Atlas Bar. And then the best way to try our product is by going to our site, atlasbars.com. And uh, you can try a sample pack on there, which is all six flavors for, for just 10 bucks. So we, we created that product specifically to allow people to, to try the product uh, without having to shell out 30 or $40 on something that you're not yet sure about. So yeah. Okay. And just, you know, wrapping up here, you know, there are other entrepreneurs that are, they're listening to this podcast. They're in the, you know, food beverage space, uh, mainly CPG brands, you know, what parting advice would you give them? So I think this applies outside of just CPG entrepreneurs, but one thing that every person in history has had, every successful person in history has had in common. The only thing that I know of is that they all just kept going Anybody who gave up obviously wasn't successful. So there are going to be times when it feels like it's hopeless and it feels like the walls are closing in. And those are usually the times that you just got to push through and keep going and you'll be out on the other side in no time. I've experienced a number of those myself and I can tell you that's how it goes. So I would just say, keep going. All right, James, that's a great note to end on. I appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. This has been awesome. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. 
To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.